bought that mic 22 years ago. Uh, so it's, it came off the ark, passed through the Red Sea, spent some time in Babylonian captivity. He's come back to Jerusalem, and I think it was there at the crucifixion. So it uh, might be time to upgrade the mic. I don't know. I used to have a love-hate relationship with that thing, so Pete, Pete can tell you that. I mean, I uh, back and forth on that one. But what a joy to be with you, and uh, always look forward to uh, a time when I can come and share with you and to see how you've grown. And uh, it's good to see that there are people hanging on to the back of the bus and climbing on top of the bus to hang on. And uh, we, need to, we need to pray you guys into a building. I, I think that's really what we need to do here and uh, really make it a matter of concerted prayer that God would give you a permanent residing place. Uh, so that you can be a permanent light in a, 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 some community somewhere around here. And so I think we're really going to pray about that and uh, see what God can do and uh, give you, give you a, a building of your own. And uh, that's my one regret, that when I left, I didn't leave Living Hope in a building. And uh, so uh, now I, I need to uh, pray more concertedly about that. But uh, what a joy to be here and uh, just to see what God is doing and uh, to, uh, I know we, we've heard good things, and I continue to hear a lot of gossip about Denver and about the, the men here, the, the elders, but uh, that they're doing a wonderful job. And uh, I can see that by, by what's taking place. So uh, God bless you, and excel still even more in the days ahead. Uh, but uh, we praise God for you, and praise God that he's kept you afloat all these years and uh, you don't see me much or hear from me much because I stay out of your business. Once I left, I left. And, uh, but I've always been available for advice, and uh, from time to time, Denver will call me and ask me a question or two. And maybe that's just to humor the old man. I'm not sure uh, what he's trying to do there, but uh, what a joy. And we're, we're currently out at uh, Everglen Baptist. I'm serving on the elder board there. I'm the, the pastor or the elder over uh, leadership training and development. And so I oversee some lay leadership uh, training and development as well as the Berean Bible Institute, which I think you're familiar with. Uh, hopefully you're familiar with it. And uh, some of your folks are in the Berean Bible Institute, uh, like Hilton is a name that I know, and a couple of others, uh, John Kennedy. Um, but uh, certainly, uh, that's, that's really my baby right now. And uh, so I'm going to nurture that and see what God does with that. And uh, your pastor, he does some training for us there, lectures for us, as well as some other men in the area. Uh, Lundgren Till Yard from uh, Stellenbosch and uh, Bruce Newsom. I think he's also a known quantity to you all. And uh, so these are guys who lecture on a regular basis for me. And uh, I, I actually am, haven't done that much lecturing. I'm busy behind the scenes trying to organize everything else. But uh, we'll do so uh, more lecturing in the days ahead. So that's, that's kind of our, our main ministry. So I've been serving as the academic dean of uh, BBI, and uh, that's kind of a joke in and of itself because when I graduated from high school, I was voted most likely never to be academic. And uh, so here I am, the academic dean of Berean Bible Institute, and uh, praise God for that opportunity. So God has a wonderful sense of humor. Well, enough about me. It's also good to have our friends uh, Jeff and Holly Drew and uh, the reason they're down here is they did a seminar for us yesterday. Dr. Drew, 
uh, is not only a medical doctor with over 40 years experience, he's also a biblical counselor and well-trained at that. And uh, so he came down to do a three-hour <coughs> seminar for us and uh, spent a lot of time dealing with ADHD and, and some of the uh, medications that are involved with all of that. Uh, tonight we'll be having a Q&A at Everglen. You're more than welcome to attend if you don't have anything on here. And uh, he'll be answering questions in relationship to biblical counseling, depression, ADHD, things of that nature. And uh, so you're more than welcome to attend that if you want to go for a bit of a drive out to the northern suburbs uh, there at Everglen. Well, this morning, it's my joy to open the Word of God to you, and uh, I'm going to ask you to take your copy of God's Word. Please turn to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, and there's one particular verse that I'm going to hammer and hang on this morning, and uh, it's found in 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 13. And so let me just read verses 13 through 16, then we'll pray, and then we'll get right to it. But 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, Peter says there, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for what you're doing here at Living Hope Bible Church. We thank you for the leadership, for Denver, for Don, for Peter, for others who, who help in so many various ways. May you strengthen them. May you grant them wisdom. May you give them much grace. May you hold them up on eagles' wings. And may they never grow weary in this well-doing. And Father, may you bless this work, and may you take them from strength to strength and blessing to blessing. And Father, if it would please you, may you help them to find a permanent meeting place. Now, Father, as we open your word, open our hearts, open our minds, that we might receive it with gladness, and that it may take up root and residence within us and bring forth much fruit for your honor, for your glory, and for our earthly good. And we pray it all in the name of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I've entitled the message this morning, Pursuing a Well-Adorned Mind. When I was growing up in the western part of the United States, I remember a commercial in my teenage years warning about the dangers of drug use and drug abuse. And in that commercial, they would show an egg frying in a pool of hot grease in a cast iron skillet with the moniker, this is your brain on drugs. Now at the end of the commercial, 
The parting shot was this. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. And certainly a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And there are numerous, innumerable ways in which one can waste their mind, not just on drugs, not just on alcohol or mind-altering substances, but there are many other ways that we can destroy our minds. This is true of Christians as well. And one of the greatest dangers that we face as blood-bought believers in Jesus Christ is to park our minds in neutral and never give our salvation the thought that it well deserves. And given our hyper-subjective culture, our uber-emotional era, it is far too easy to succumb to the status quo and to feel our way through Christianity rather than thinking our way through Christianity. It's too easy to become earthbound in our faith with no real sense of acknowledgement of the eternal and of our ultimate glorification that awaits the believer. The Bible has much to say about the mind. Sometimes and oftentimes it uses the terminology heart, but heart and mind are so often synonymous in Scripture. And Scripture says much, both positively and negatively, about the mind, about the heart. In Luke 1.51, in the Magnificat of Mary, it talks about those who have a proud mind or a proud heart. Colossians 1.21 talks about those who are hostile in their minds and they are engaged in evil deeds. In 2 Corinthians 3.14, Paul talks about the hardened mind. That's the one that you might call a blockhead. The one who will not listen. The one who is stubborn and recalcitrant and intransigent. And you just can't teach this individual anything. Then there's the blinded mind in 2 Corinthians 4.4. These are the ones walking around and they... They just can't see, spiritually speaking. There's the straying mind of 2 Corinthians 11.3. There's what is called the enraged mind. What is the enraged mind? Well, if you keep your finger here in 1 Peter and turn over to Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel in chapter 6 And the scene here is a man with a withered hand that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Now, of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were there. They, how dare he heal on the Sabbath? And so the result of that miracle that Jesus did on that Sabbath day is recorded in verse 11 of Luke 6. But they themselves, that's the Pharisees, That's the Sadducees. They were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Here you have mortal enemies, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, coming together in unity because they were filled with rage. That terminology 
an enraged mind is a word that means against the mind. It's what I like to call irrational fury. They were beside themselves. It is a mind where emotion drives the train of thoughts. And it produces the kind of histrionics that we've become so accustomed to in our own day and age. Almost every headline that you will read in the mainstream media today is histrionics. It's the end of the world. It's all coming apart at the seams. If you don't stop driving that gas-guzzling combustion engine, it's all going to end. You see, we've got to change. We've got to lock ourselves in our homes, never go anywhere, because the world is falling apart. That's what they tell us. That's histrionics. Our culture is submerged and baptized and saturated in this kind of thinking today. Paul talks about the foolish mind in Romans 1.21. The foolish mind or the foolish heart is darkened, he says. Those who no longer worship the creator, but rather the creation instead. And so he says here that their foolish heart or their foolish mind is darkened. Then there's the depraved or the reprobate mind of Romans 1.28. And, and the reprobate mind is the mind that is morally bankrupt. It's ethically insensate, meaning it no longer feels. It can no longer discern between right and wrong. That is part of the judgment of God because it says in Romans 1.28 that God will give over a people to a reprobate mind when they don't listen to his word. That's what happens when you worship the creature rather than the creator. God judges. And Paul makes that very clear. God judges in three ways in Romans 1. When you worship the creature rather than the creator, he says in verse 24 that he gives them actively, judicially, hands them over to licentiousness. You can read into that the sexual revolution. In verses 26 and 27, he says, I give them over to normalized homosexuality. Women with women and men with men doing that which is unseemly. That's the judgment of God. And then in verse 28, this is kind of the end of the line. I give them over to a reprobate mind that can no longer discern between right and wrong. And so God abandons the mind that is not committed to him. That is judgment. That is how God is judging today. And it's all around us. Everywhere we turn, you can't avoid it. There's also an obedient mind, 2 Corinthians 10.5. And then there's the mind that wholly loves God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. That's the greatest commandment, that a mind that loves God. And then there's a mind that focuses on the eternal hope 
that one has in Christ. And that's the mind that Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 1.13. And so we find in this verse that which is central to Peter's epistle. And the theme here in 1 Peter is encroaching suffering and persecution of believers by outside forces. Because Peter wrote this in 65 A.D. That was one year after Nero, who was the emperor of Rome at that time, burned over two-thirds of, of Rome, and he blamed the Christians. And he crucified them. He turned them into human uh, lamps. He fed them to wild dogs, and so forth. And so this was the beginning of persecution on the early church, at least in the Roman province. And so Peter could see what was coming. He read the tea leaves, so to speak. And he's writing a group of believers that are scattered through what is now modern-day northern central Turkey. And he writes to them to encourage them to tell them how to live in light of the fiery trial that is about to descend upon them. A trial where they would be categorized alongside of murderers, thieves, insurrectionists, and evildoers. In the United States of America today, people like me are considered a potential terrorist threat by the Department of Homeland Security because of what I believe and what I preach and what I teach. If you go to a school board meeting in the United States and you complain against the sex ed curricula, which is trying to teach your sons to be girls and your daughters to be boys, you're labeled a terrorist threat. Don't worry. It's already beginning to happen right here. And you can't avoid it, unfortunately. But you better complain and you better fight. And so we live in very unique times. Not too dissimilar from what Peter is addressing in 65 A.D., Persecution's coming, my friends. I see it clearly. The cloud, the dark clouds are rising on the horizon. And it's going to incrementally intensify as time goes on. And you're going to see it happen through hate speech laws, through gender equity, like that which is proposed by the, the Western Cape Department of Education. What they're proposing for your sons and daughters is an abomination. It's pure debauchery. They want to destroy their lives with the sexual revolution. And if you stand up against that, you are going to be labeled, but you better take the label and take it gladly. So what can we learn from all of this? What can we learn from 1 Peter 1.13 that will enable us in 2022 and beyond, to maintain our Christian testimony and our Christian equilibrium in the midst of the firestorm that is growing. 
Well, in this one verse, 1 Peter 1.13, we find four actions that help produce a well-adorned mind that is enabled for suffering and persecution. First, we're going to look at considering your possession, which is our salvation. Secondly, concentrating on our eternal hope. Thirdly, cultivating a mind or preparing our minds for action and then controlling our thoughts by keeping sober. Let's begin with the first action and it's this. Consider your possession. What possession? Well, notice what he says here in verse 13. Look at it very intently. How does he begin verse 13? Therefore... In other words, what Peter is about to say is directly tied to everything he says in his opening salvo in his introduction. The therefore in the verse points back to all of the preceding material which includes a rich recitation of the believer's calling in election and the glories of salvation that every blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ enjoys. This then serves as the foundation, as the cornerstone and the basis for surviving the temporal tempest on planet Earth. And so Peter reminds them of their rich spiritual heritage and inheritance. He begins in verses 1 and 2 and reminds them and tells them to consider that they are chosen sojourners. He says in verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be strengthened with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. I prefer the translation that says they're chosen sojourners. And I think that's the correct one. And so he's reminding them, you are chosen sojourners according to the foreknowledge of God. And as chosen sojourners, their true homeland is heaven, it's not earth. And the earthly residence is only temporary. It's not permanent. So believers have a city whose builder and maker is God, according to Hebrews 11. And when you're in Christ, you're just a pilgrim passing through. And while we might have a residence permit here on earth, our passport is stamped heaven. As resident aliens, though, we're not the same. There are distinguishable differences between us and the world. We might live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. At least we're not supposed to be. It's like me. I've been a resident alien in South Africa for 28 years. I suppose the term alien probably says much. But no matter how hard I try, 
I will never fully be South African. Because some people delight on a regular basis of reminding me my accent is different. And here I thought you had the accent. I don't have an accent. But some delight in telling me that. My speech is different. My mannerisms are different. My culture is different to a point. But I've had to adopt and I've had to adapt, and I've done so to the best of my God-given ability. But hard as I may try, I have to confess, cricket will never, ever be my cup of tea. I'd rather watch grass grow and paint dry than watch a cricket match. Sorry, I'm just being honest here. I prefer a gas fire to a wood fire when brying. Why? Because I want to eat in this century, not in the next century. I say pastor, you say pastor. I say ketchup, you say tomato sauce. But that's okay, because when I hear you talk about Mexican food, I get my own. It's pronounced tacos, not tacos. They're tortillas, not tortillas. And they're called jalapenos, not jalapenos. We're resident aliens. We're not the same. And we're not supposed to be. And this is all according to the foreknowledge of God, he says there in verse 2. I like what Wayne Grudem says about foreknowledge. He says it refers to more than God just knowing a fact before it happens. He says this, But to his knowing people with a personal, loving, fatherly knowledge. According to God's fatherly care for you before the world was made. This implies that their status as sojourners, their privileges as God's chosen people, even their hostile environment were all known by God before the world began. And thus, in accordance with his fatherly love for his own people, such foreknowledge is laden with comfort for Peter's readers. Foreknowledge speaks of that unique, special relationship between God and his elect, those who are saved. And it speaks of that familial relationship, father to son, father to daughter. That's the comfort when the chips are down and the heat is turned up. And so they're to consider that. Further, they're to consider their end-time inheritance, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in that last time. And in that shell, 
What is he saying? He's saying this. There is that constant abiding joy and that future heavenly reward and that is something that we always have to praise the Lord for. And we're and the, the down payment and all of that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of the resurrection and the empty tomb, we have a living hope. That's why this church is called Living Hope Bible Church. Because of passages like this. And so, even when we're in the midst of pain and suffering of whatever sort, there is a living hope. And that living hope is key to the empty tomb. And so we're to consider that. Further, they were to consider their future inheritance. Verses 6 through 9. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to the result and the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of gold glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith salvation, the salvation of your souls. Consider that spiritual heavenly inheritance. And it is that which spawns and gives rise to joy and suffering. What Peter is saying is that despite the pain, despite the suffering, there is a deep spiritual joy and rejoicing that takes place in God for what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ, because that serves as a will and testament that someday our salvation will be complete and we will stand in his presence with glorified frames and none of this will matter at that point in time. You see, grief and pain arise from this temporal, finite, fallen world. But joy arises from the eternal hope that reaches far beyond the bounds of this world. And therefore, our joy is not subject to the circumstances of this world. Our joy transcends what we know right here and right now. And interestingly, the word, the verb that is used for joy here in these verses is a very unique, distinct word for joy in the Greek New Testament that was only used by those ancient Christians. There was no secular counterpart in the Greek language in that day because if you do not know Jesus Christ, there is no way, no shape, no how that you can ever know this kind of joy. You can't. It's impossible. So you need to get saved. You need to repent. That's the joy that's promised. They're to consider this. We're to consider this. 
Further, they were to consider their unique blessings. Verses 10 through 12 here. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What's he saying here? He's wrapping up his initial argument with a reminder that You are enjoying something that the ancient prophets and the patriarchs of old in the Old Testament didn't enjoy. They looked forward to it. You're looking back at it now because the mysteries of Jesus Christ, him crucified and risen again and ascended to the right hand of the Father on high, have all now been demystified. So you have more understanding than the ancients. What a blessing that is. And yet, we know from Hebrews 11, they were faithful to the bitter end. The prophets sought to know more. Angels, even intensely interested in salvation. He says, but you enjoy it. Even though you might be suffering a little while now. All of that is critical for understanding how to survive trials that come your way. It begins with our salvation. It ends with our salvation and the glorification that will someday follow. So they're to consider all of this. After this, from verses 13 on to the end of the epistle, Peter gives 34 commands. But those commands are not vacuous. They're deeply rooted in salvation. And so he begins with salvation where he must. The reality of what is must always proceed and give way to the commands of what one must do in light of such a reality. And because they possess so great a salvation by so great a Savior, Jesus Christ, they are to live and they are to act in a certain way which reflects that salvation even when the chips are down. We don't get a pass. We don't get to jettison our Christian faith when things aren't going all peachy keen for us. Proving once again that sound theology should always lead how one should live in light of such truths. How do you live in the midst of trial, pain, grief? Considering the wonderful possession that you have in your salvation in Christ Jesus. Secondly, concentrate your eternal hope on him. Fix your hope on him. Verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
The main verb here is fix your hope. The other two verbal ideas are participles that explain how you fix your hope. So let's begin with fixing your hope, concentrating on your eternal hope. The nature of this hope is that it is a confident, eager expectation that will not disappoint. It's far stronger than the vague notions of a wish or a dream. In the New Testament, it always refers to the expectation of something good. And this hope to which Peter references here is the hope of the completion of our salvation. Hope is vital to the Christian message. That's why he talks about the living hope. In verses 3 and 4. Here are five truths about biblical hope. I'll just give them to you quickly. Number one. Hope is never self-centered, nor is it self-serving, because it is always focused on Jesus Christ and his gospel and God the Father, the architect of salvation. So it's not self-centered. Secondly, hope never rests on good works, but rather on the gracious work provided through the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because in chapter 1 of Colossians, he talks about both the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, hope encourages Christians who are in the midst of some great trial. We're not saying just, Don't worry, be happy. We're not going to throw out cliches like, well, it's always darkest before the dawn. Well, every dark cloud has a silver lining. Now, that's, that's not how you comfort someone. But you do remind them, this will not last forever. And while you might be in pain and suffering, you can simultaneously have that confident joy knowing that someday you will enjoy the presence of God the Father in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, hope leads to reordering one's priority in accordance with God's agenda and God's will, not ours. And finally, hope inevitably leads to ethical changes in one's life. 1 John 3.3 says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. And so it leads to changing our lives, to dramatic change, ethical change. Notice what Peter says here in verse 13, this hope that we're to fix our minds on. It's fully set on the second coming of Jesus Christ. That which is yet to be revealed. This is our great expectation. This is our great anticipation. 
this great revealing that will take place someday when the Lord returns. And even now, there is an imminent expectation of the Lord's soon return. And so we look forward to that. What is hope's greatest desire? That believers are to live in the present, displaying their greatest desire is the consummation of the finished work of their salvation, which God has began in them through Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, you want to survive trial? You want to survive suffering? You want to get through the pain? Concentrate on your eternal hope. Consider your salvation. And thirdly, cultivate your mind. Prepare your mind. He says here, therefore prepare your minds for action. Not for the couch. Not for recreation. Prepare your minds for action. He uses a, a common first century metaphor. Gird up your minds, of course, is a metaphor and an analogy to the oriental custom that they had of gathering up their robes and pulling it into a sash or a belt so that they could move unencumbered. Whether it meant running or whether they were in battle, they would pull up those robes and tuck them in so that they weren't tripped up by those robes. You see, they didn't have spandex shorts. They didn't have yoga pants. And so we must gird up our minds, discipline our minds, simply meaning to begin thinking right thoughts, by a transformed mind. What does Paul say in Romans 12 too? Renew your minds. That's what a transformed mind does. We begin to think differently. We begin to think biblically, not secularly. The meaning of this? It refers not to wishful thinking or unfounded optimism, but rather to mental resolve. A mental resolve that sets one's hope on the future grace of completed salvation, which we call glorification. In other words, focus more intently on the things to come than on tomorrow's headlines. Read the headlines, but read them through the lens of things to come. The objective, here it's the mind, not the emotions, not the will. It begins with right thinking, where right thinking impacts our emotional well-being, which then serves to kick our will or our volition into gear. 
And the concept here is that of understanding that we are to work. And that work is impacted by our wills, which is preceded by right thinking. In other words, there is intentional, premeditated disposition or attitude that begins to actively think based on verses 1 through 12 of chapter 1. In short, we're talking about disciplined thinking with a reference to the blessings of redemptive grace. So the believer must think in a new way. Salvation is not just an addendum to our lives. It becomes the core of our lives. And so we must think differently so that we can act differently. This doesn't happen automatically. It's a process. It's called sanctification or growing in grace. And it requires effort, concentration, intentionality. A simple way of putting it to gird up your minds Get your mind in the game. Many coaches have done that. Get your minds in the game, boys. Remember the old movie Cool Hand Luke with a rebellious prisoner and the prison warder called Luke aside and he said, Get your mind right, boy. Get your mind right. That's the idea. Get your mind right. That's kind of hard to do when there are so many churches and so many seminaries and Bible colleges that aren't preparing people to get their minds right. Spurgeon said, Therefore, when your mind is instructed concerning some grand truth, after you have sucked the honey and joy out of it, always say to yourself, But what are the bearings of this doctrine upon my life? How should it influence me? What would God have me to do as a result of receiving such teaching as this? More simply, Warren Wiersbe says, outlook determines outcome, and attitude determines action. And so, the believer is to cultivate their mind, to prepare their minds. Finally, the fourth action to surviving trial and persecution is control your thoughts. Control your thoughts. Keep a sober mind. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. This speaks of a mental and spiritual alertness that is not given to the mental and emotional intoxications and excesses and impulsive rashness of the day. A self-controlled thought life, not given to the polar extremes that exist out there. In other words, to have a sober mind is to have a well-balanced mind. A self-controlled thought life that's not in danger of irrational fury and irrational thinking. It is a restrained mind that does not gravitate too far to the left or too far to the right. Paul admonished Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, be sober in all things. Or, 
Keep your head in all situations by not allowing outside forces and circumstances to control us. Having a proactive mind instead of a reactionary mind. See, that's what the world's doing. It's just reacting. It's not proactive. And all of this includes and implies living in the land of reality. There are too many people who are out there living in la-la land. They're not living in reality. Dr. Drew and I were talking about that earlier this morning. And he was saying that good mental health begins on the predicate of living in reality. I often joke with people and tell them I'm the mayor of Realityville. That's really what he's talking about here. So when one is under the gun, taking enemy fire, one needs to keep their head even when everyone else around them is losing theirs. In chapter 4 of 1 Peter, in verse 7, he issues the same decree. To the end of all, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Part of our sober-mindedness is that we're given to some prayer as well. Verse 8 of chapter 5, he says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If ever we needed a sober mind, it is today. In case you haven't noticed, the world has gone completely stark raving berserk. Everything is hyperbolized. Everything is exaggerated to the extreme, from COVID to climate change to gender identity to preferred pronouns. You know what my preferred pronouns are? Truth. And honesty. And you might be saying, but brother, those are abstract nouns. Yes, I know, but they self identify as pronouns. <laughs> See, that's how absurd things have gotten. I'm not going to get down in the mud with you and play silly little word games. Words mean something, and I'm not going to be given to that. You're going to get truth, and you're going to get honesty from me. And that's the tack we all need to take, not enable these people who are deranged and confused. The world's gone bonkers. The reprobate mind is the spirit of the age. And it's taking people further and further away from the reality of our atmosphere. One commentator, Thomas Schreiner, New Testament scholar, said, Peter was not merely saying that believers should refrain from drunkenness of mind. There is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God. That is anesthetized by the attractions of this world. When people are lulled into such drowsiness or laziness of mind, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. 
It's a wonderful statement. It is so easy to become dull and lulled into that lethargy. So how do you keep from doing so? How do you keep from losing your head and going off the deep end without the aid of pharmaceuticals or alcohol? Consider your possession of salvation in Jesus Christ. Concentrate on the eternal hope, our glorification, which is ours when we're in Christ. Cultivate your mind for action and control your thoughts instead of allowing the current culture to control your thoughts for you. To sum it all up, Warren Wearsby said, Christians live in the future tense. Their present actions and decisions are governed by this future hope. Let me ask you this morning. Are your present actions governed by this wonderful future hope that is ours in Jesus Christ? And if not, why not? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these words of admonition and encouragement from the Apostle Peter, though written some 2,000 years ago. They seem just as appropriate today as the day in which they were penned. And Lord, as we see the dark clouds arising in the horizon, May we not be despondent. May we not be given to depression. May we not be given to despair. But rather may any pain or suffering or persecution that we might endure, may it always be gilded with that rock bed assurance and certainty of the living hope which is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ because of an empty tomb. And may that give rise to great joy and a confident expectation of things to come. Father, may you give us that grace. May you give us that strength to allow both pain, grief, and joy to reside within us simultaneously. May we not lose sight of that which is most important. Help us to live our present day lives in light of the future glory which is ours in Christ. Until then, help us, give us the strength, the grace, and the wisdom, and the mercy to withstand the onslaught and to occupy as chosen sojourners of the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes. Father, if there is one here this morning who does not know Christ, they cannot know this living hope. They cannot have this abiding joy. And so my prayer for them this morning is that you will convict them, that you will convince them, and that you will draw them by the cords of your love 
to the foot of your son's cross and bring them to true heartfelt repentance and confession of sin that they might enjoy so great a salvation and so great a Savior. Help us now to go forth from this place in light of such salvation. And we pray it all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.